Welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, March the 22nd. And on Tuesdays, we have Mr. Dwaskin. Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Angela. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I hope you can all hear me well. Um, so we've passed the first day of spring and uh, we are uh, starting a new uh, kind of a, a new term in, in the year. Um, I've decided to, because of the overwhelming importance and the overwhelming uh, presence of the war in Europe, uh, I've decided to continue to speak about that subject for a bit. Uh, to focus today uh, on the um, international ramifications or the foreign aspects of the war. Because um, unlike in many previous times, um, today, because of the close, close ties that the world has to each other, because of the internet, because of the presence of uh, film crews all over the place, it's pretty well instant uh, in, in, in real time that people find out what's going on everywhere. And people then are, of course, able to form opinions and to uh, uh, take sides in a way. And um, uh, although the war is only being fought between two countries, so many other ones are implicated. And the fact that uh, economic steps have been taken uh, to uh, sanction Russia the uh, reverberations of the sanctions are really felt all around the world and very quickly. So that's why it's, it's really um, an important subject. And as I will get to perhaps at the end, it, it's one of the uh, perhaps um, 10 uh, most important uh, dates um, in European history uh, to date. You know, we'll look, about, we'll look at that uh, later, but... Um, uh, one of the things that we uh, uh, should take note of is that um, uh, China is being um, more and more closely um, requested on the one side to help and on the other side not to help. And uh, the president of China, Mr. Xi, is uh, due for a uh, re-appointment uh, this fall to his lifetime term. And um, he doesn't want to have this great uh, occasion messed up by any kind of uh, Chinese involvement in some sort of a war by proxy or, or even uh, perhaps an active war. And so this Russia-Ukraine um, war uh, is sort of unsettles China a bit in the sense that uh, although the Chinese government expressed support for Russia, and although they are sort of uh, twins, uh, you know, birds of a feather in a sense, neighbors, both undemocratic regimes, both uh, have a large state-owned uh, uh, economies. Um, still, the, uh, the fact that uh, um, the world and the United States in particular have gone to China and said, look, China, don't get too involved in this war. Don't support Russia. Don't break sanctions. Um, you, you know, don't facilitate their money handling. Don't facilitate money laundering. Uh, don't give, in other words, aid and support to a country which is attacking an innocent uh, victim. And um, you know, that's given China pause. And so the commentators in China are kind of not quite sure which side to. Um, which side to lean on. Um, and uh, if it ends up costing China uh, practical uh, costs for breaking sanctions, they may feel that it's not worth doing it and because it will, uh, as I said before, mess up the fall um, anointment of President Xi as president for life. Uh, China has just announced their target for economic growth for the year, which is five and a half percent, which is the lowest target that they've set in the last 20 years. So if uh, because of the war, the economies around the world end up slowing down uh, and China doesn't quite meet its target, it's going to look even more embarrassing for, 
for President uh, Xi uh, come, uh, come the fall. Um, uh, on, on the other hand, of course, uh, China is about the only uh, major country that Russia can count on today to buy its um, export goods of oil, gas, uh, metals, minerals, etc. And uh, China certainly has not uh, agreed to stop buying these things. And uh, therefore, it's sort of a lifeline for uh, President uh, Putin to be able to raise some money for his board. Um, uh, the fact, though, that China is in such a key negotiating position means that China will, and I'm sure does, extract a high price to be able to go around the sanctions and help Mr. Putin. So even though the oil prices have gone up in the world, um, and uh, I believe I saw somewhere that they hit $130 a barrel before settling down to sort of around 100. Um, these extra high prices uh, won't help Russia as much as they could because they can't, number one, sell so much oil. And number two, the countries that they sell oil to are demanding a um, discount uh, because they're handling a product which is uh, sanctioned uh, by most countries in the world. Um, other countries who, uh, whose leaders have sympathized with Mr. Putin for a long time, namely um, the leaders of Hungary and Poland, uh, Mr. Orban and Mr. Kaczynski, um, you, you know, they saw themselves as in a certain way like mini Putins. Uh, sort of uh, dictators in their own country, elected once, but after that, uh, you know, trying to manipulate elections, people who are nationalistic, people who are uh, religious, uh, people who are anti-immigrant. Um, these leaders have kind of almost turned 180 degrees from being uh, pro-Putin to being anti-Putin. And uh, the war in Ukraine, the invasion caused this shift, this 180 degree shift um, in those countries. There's another nationalistic leader, uh, the one in Slovenia who, um, although not that close to the action, um, looks as if uh, this could be the last push to get him out of office because of uh, the just general disgust with the uh, kind of nationalistic uh, European uh, politics. Um, in Hungary and Poland, uh, they have done this 180 degree turn by welcoming Ukrainian immigrants, by turning back to NATO instead of, instead of turning away from NATO, which they were doing before, they're now turning back to NATO, realizing that if all of Europe doesn't stay together, Russia could end up picking, picking off these countries one by one. And um, uh, the reception that these Ukrainian uh, refugees, and I believe, I think I saw a number now close to 4 million uh, refugees uh, from the Ukrainian uh, war side, uh, which is uh, getting close to 10% of the country, that they've been welcomed so much by, not, not so much by the governments in these countries, but by the very people and normal citizens in the countries that the government sort of has to move along and play, um, play catch up or, or, or sort of uh, play along with the spirit and offer these immigrants all kinds of um, uh, welcoming services, schooling, housing, uh, healthcare, et cetera. And it was the people themselves in Poland, in Hungary, in Romania, in Moldova who paved the way for this. Um, there's other countries like Armenia, who is uh, Russia's best friend at one point. Uh, at this point, Armenia is serving as a conduit to receive Russian, we'll call them Russian refugees, uh, Russian people who disagree with the government, who don't want to get arrested, 
who disagree with the war and uh, they are able to take flights to Armenia and therefore get out of the sort of clutches of the Russian uh, secret police. Um, same thing in Georgia, uh, although Georgia was always an enemy of Russia lately, but uh, many, many of these um, Russian uh, people and this, my, my figures show over a quarter of a million already have left Russia to go abroad because they disagree with the government. Um, even countries like Bulgaria and Serbia, like I mentioned last time, especially Serbia, um, uh, have turned uh, away from being so pro-Russian to uh, kind of um, moving more into the middle. Um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, the um, effect on politics, however, is one where these leaders, uh, although they made a 180 degree turn, it may end up costing them their jobs. So for example, in Hungary, uh, there's elections gonna be held uh, this year. And Mr. Orban, whose, whose popularity was already going down, this Ukrainian action could push him over the edge, meaning that he could actually lose an election to the sort of um, a united uh, opposition which is made up in Hungary of, uh, of uh, sort of liberals, uh, socialists, and even nationalists who are against Orban. And, um, you know, because of his strong support for Putin before, it may be that the people uh, just don't trust him anymore uh, with regard to uh, this uh, crisis. Um, uh, um, Orban, the, you know, his message is, well, you know, uh, only I could save you from a Russian invasion. But, you know, the, these messages of, uh, can you excuse me just one little second? I want to just shut my door because I hear banging. Sorry about that. Um, in Poland, the uh, government there was particularly anti-EU and anti-Europe, anti-liberal, pro-Catholic, um, anti-immigration. And yet all of these things kind of just changed overnight with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Remember that Poland and the Ukraine were tied together for so long, for hundreds of years in history. Uh, there are many, many Ukrainians who were living in Poland beforehand. Um, and uh, Mr. Kaczynski, who, who was so, um, you know, anti-EU, he took a train to Kiev with the leaders of Czech Republic and Slovenia to express support for uh, the Ukrainian government. And uh, the... Um, the warm, uh, green, the refugees being accepted in Poland, and uh, more than half of all the refugees, or almost about half of the refugees leaving um, Ukraine have ended up in Poland, that it surprised everyone. And um, the New York Times uh, had an article saying that, uh, uh, that uh, some nationalists uh, claim, get this, that the COVID vaccine had some kind of secret pro-immigration ingredient. That people just couldn't figure out how is it possible that a country that was so anti-immigrant could turn to be pro-immigrant so fast. And some people say, well, maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was the, uh, you know, the COVID vaccines that people took. I, I assume it's a joke, but. Um, some people, of course, say that Kaczynski of Poland is just playing politics, but uh, in the meantime, the country has received so many refugees. Uh, they have been, uh, like I said, there's about 4 million refugees who left the Ukraine, but there's about a 10 million refugees total who've been displaced from their homes. And this is in a country of around 40 million people. So roughly, just roughly, the Ukraine and Canada have roughly the same populations um, actually with Ukraine even a little bit more. 
Um, the um, the uh, another, you know, the other uh, the, the other great lesson or the great um, uh, yeah, I guess you call it lesson is that um, uh, Putin's gamble was really a complete failure at this point. There's, there's practically nothing that he could do now that could turn around um, you know, his decision, even if he was able to conquer the Ukraine uh, you know, in another uh, month, let's say. Uh, the die is already cast. Uh, the sanctions that have been put on, uh, I saw an interview with uh, one of the American financial heads who says that Russians, Russia's economy is going to be cut in half in a relatively short time. So in other words, on average, people will be twice as poor as they were beforehand. Um, the, uh, the, uh, his, his, the, the invasion didn't change the Ukraine. He wasn't able to kick Mr. Zelensky out, but he made Mr. Zelensky a hero in the eyes of uh, his countrymen and of the world. He drew Europe close together, much closer together than they were before. Um, uh, he made the United States-Europe relations stronger. Remember under Trump, uh, Trump was ready to abandon NATO at a certain point because his belief was uh, America shouldn't be uh, tied to anybody else. Um, uh, he put China on a bad foot, like, like I was saying before at the beginning. Uh, China now might have to think twice about invading Taiwan if, if it raised such a ruckus, uh, the Ukraine uh, invasion raised such a ruckus and they were so good at defending themselves. You know, Taiwan would be even better defending themselves because there's of course an ocean uh, of water between uh, China and Taiwan. Um, he, Putin turned the Russian speaking population of the Ukraine, which are about a third of the country, or even more than a third of the country are native Russian speaking people. And Putin's idea was that he would go into the Ukraine to so-called defend the rights of these Russian speaking people whose rights were not being taken away. And um, he managed to turn those people against himself and against Russia. So uh, pretty well all of the Russian speaking people in, for example, in Kharkov, which is their Kharkiv, the, the biggest Russian speaking city, or Mariupol, which is the one which be, is being surrounded and bombed, um, you know, by bombing these civilian centers. Um, he's, he's completely alienated the Russian speaking peoples of the Ukraine uh, against, uh, against him. Um, of course, he's also alienated the liberals in Russia itself, as I was mentioning, especially the arts community, the intellectual community, the university people, uh, liberals who live in the, in the major cities. Um, these are people who are Western oriented and believed in a sort of a civil society and believed in democracy. And he's turned these people against his regime. Um, many have left, thousands have been arrested, and, and the vast majority uh, haven't been arrested and haven't left, but are just sitting uh, at home kind of waiting for all this to be over, and um, have definitely uh, not bought the stories that uh, Putin is telling on Russian television. Most people in Russia at this point still support Putin and still believe him, because uh, they aren't uh, able to receive any alternative news except the fake news that's being offered on Russian communications. But as time goes on, more and more uh, chances are opening up for hackers to get into the communication system to tell an alternative story. Uh, more and more uh, telephone calls are received from people abroad uh, telling them what's really going on. And so in a certain sense, it's a, you know, Putin is in a race against time because as time goes on, uh, truth eventually penetrates even into the darkest uh, curtains. And, um, uh, you know, that's what's happening now in Russia.
Um, the stock market of Russia still hasn't opened up. Uh, so it's been closed since the invasion. Uh, the Russian ruble hit a low of 136 to the dollar. Um, it's come back a bit, uh, but it's still uh, down 50% at least from what it was, uh, let's say, um, before the invasion or, or last fall or something like that. So it means that, you know, their money buys half of what it was able to buy of any imports. And Russia is extremely dependent on imports for its um, standard of living, for its consumer products, uh, for pretty well everything that they, the country does consume. Um, the shortages have begun to be felt. Uh, I was reading about rationing taking place in, uh, you know, in some cities for certain items. Um, many Western companies have just stopped selling to Russia altogether. So all those products are not available. And even if they have the products, uh, they can't get the replacement parts or they can't get uh, you know, any supplemental uh, items that they need to go with, uh, let's say the cars or, or machines or anything else like that. Uh, Putin has admitted that the economy is what he calls in a state of transition. And I would call it a, an economy in a state of fall or free fall. Um, uh, Russia was never able to be self-sufficient and uh, have a Western standard of living at the same time. And some people in Russia, there was a middle class. That middle class did enjoy a standard of living, uh, you know, similar to European standards. There were modern shopping centers. There are modern shopping centers and modern streets and modern cafes and all that kind of thing. Um, but... Uh, uh, the um, war has really instantly changed all of those uh, things that were once uh, commonplace in, in, in Russia. Even in sort of smaller provincial towns, uh, people have found out about what's going on and uh, the uh, amount of dissent against uh, Putin, although let's call it centered in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but certainly plenty found in smaller cities as well. Um, now, uh, you know, it is true that Russia was or is uh, one of the biggest exporters of oil, gas and, and fertilizer. And the world is scrambling now to find alternative sources. So you might have read that um, the Canadian company Nutrien is the world's largest fertilizer manufacturer based in Saskatchewan. And uh, pretty well, if you go to the right parts of Saskatchewan and you just dig a hole, you come up with uh, fertilizer by the ton, uh, potash, you know. And um, so they've agreed to uh, expand production by over 10%. Uh, and, uh, you know, if those of you who follow the stock market have seen their stock go from around $100 to $130 pretty quick. Um, President Biden has asked, the OPEC producers to uh, increase their production of oil. And the funny thing is, is that I've read two opposite uh, opinions about where this is going. Uh, I've read that Saudi Arabia has agreed to increase production and I've read that they didn't agree to increase production. So I'm not sure which of those things is true. But what I do know is that um, wherever production can be increased in Canada or the US, um, that uh, producers are, are, are trying to ramp up production. Uh, we all know that the U.S. has spoken to Venezuela to see if they could uh, somehow or other bring them back into the civilized world and get oil from there, which has been gravely underproduced. Um, uh, even Iran, who's on sanctions uh, for, uh, you know, for their nuclear uh, sins, um, is uh, pumping up production because the prices have gone up so much and they want to uh, take advantage of that. <clears throat> um, on the other hand, the sanctioned oil, well, let's call it black oil, the black oil that Russia produces, in other words, under sanctions, um, is already competing with sanctioned oil, as I saying, from Venezuela and from Iran, 
And therefore, if Russia wants to sell that oil, they have to accept lower prices. Uh, so the, um, uh, you know, the company, the country as a whole uh, is suffering. The elites and oligarchs who've been, uh, many of whom own these oil companies, have also been sanctioned personally. Uh, you know, their overseas um, possessions have been seized, uh, you know, jets, yachts, all that kind of stuff. Although it doesn't affect the life of everyday Russians, um, these people uh, were strong supporters of Putin. Um, and uh, now if their lives are being sort of uh, jeopardized, uh, they could go back to Putin to complain, although uh, they won't because uh, Putin is uh, liable to take them and throw them in jail as he did to uh, Michael Khodorkovsky, one of the first uh, Russian oligarchs who, who opposed him. Um, the, um, the other thing that's going on, the other sort of type of warfare is the cyber attacks and cyber warfare. And this is plays on both sides. So each side is trying to use the uh, cyber world, in other words, uh, the computer world, the internet world to attack the other side. And, um, you know, both have succeeded so far in, in creating certain hacks, which disrupt uh, life in these different countries. But uh, it's part of the ongoing warfare and um, countries have now have to build up their defenses, cyber defenses, not to be knocked out uh, completely, you know, as has happened before. Um, some hackers have succeeded in, um, uh, getting into the Russian communication system and uh, delivering true news. And I was reading somewhere that there was something like 25 million views of a um, hack uh, that got into the Russian um, communications uh, world uh, and told the truth about the Ukrainian war. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the way the war has been conducted and the sort of frustrations, we'll say, that Putin has felt has turned him into a people, say, another Stalin. Uh, somebody who arrests innocent people, somebody who's willing to sacrifice the lives of his soldiers in a battle of attrition. Uh, there's no real figures on, you know, the total losses that the Russians have had, but the Russians themselves published the number of 10,000 dead and, and, and sort of in an instant when they published those figures, they were removed from the internet. And the Russians claimed that this was a hack that somebody else put it in, but it's not likely to be the truth. The, the truth is that they put the true number in and then you know somebody told them to take it out. So there have been thousands of losses in, in, in lives of Russian soldiers. There've been millions of dollars of equipment lost. And uh, the, the hit to the economy, of course, is in the billions of dollars. Uh, and uh, Putin uh, certainly at this point is not willing to, uh, uh, you know, change the way he's doing things because, you know, that would look embarrassing and be a setback to his honor. Um, uh, Stalin, uh, you might recall, uh, although he arrested people, he killed people, um, he, 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 he fought a war of, of, with tremendous losses and sacrifices. Uh, Stalin uh, died in his bed, so to speak. And um, uh, he was able to survive because he had a whole army of secret police protecting him. And Putin has done the same thing. So Putin came out of the KGB of the Soviet Union. Uh, he always depended on sort of secret service people um, you know, his, his friendship uh, with uh, the oligarchs is one which has given Putin himself a, a tremendous fortune, but uh, he knows that his own personal safety depends not on the oligarchs, but on his loyal secret police um, who are watching, uh, watching over him. Uh, in fact, uh, I was reading that the Russian army is so afraid of... Um, uh, deserters that, uh, as, as Stalin did, um, they have units of military police who are behind 
the front lines and they're there to um, uh, capture uh, and arrest any soldiers who desert. So it just goes to show how much, uh, you know, Putin himself trusts his own military, trusts his own forces. Um, the um, Ukrainians have shipped back, I don't know if you saw this, but they've shipped back 2000 bodies of dead soldiers. Um, and uh, needless to say, there was no coverage whatsoever on Russian uh, media of this, um, uh, you know, uh, of this action on behalf on part of the Ukrainians. Um, from military perspective, you know, you've seen the maps of where the Russians have gone and they've kind of gone in from the north and from the east and from the south. They haven't captured uh, a huge percentage of Ukrainian territory, but they have made advances. But what you have to understand is that they've made, they've done the easiest part first. They've sort of picked the low hanging fruit. Um, they've invaded from the Crimea, which they had already taken over going from the south. They invaded from the east, from the Donbass um, uh, provinces, we'll call them, or mini statelets, which they had taken over from before. And they used Belarus as a staging point to hit the Ukraine from the north. But the vast territory of the Ukraine is still not occupied. And, uh, you know, for Russia to, let's say, go deeper into the Ukraine means that they have longer supply lines. They risk more um, uh, counterattacks. And, uh, you know, clearly... Uh, it's already been three weeks and they haven't advanced a whole lot uh, in that time. So from a military point of view, uh, every day that they're out there in the field means more losses, more supply issues, um, uh, etc. Soldiers are already tired out. They're already discouraged. Many of them were told, uh, were not told the truth of, of where they were going for um, many of them were not even told they were going to go into the Ukraine. And, uh, and uh, so uh, there is some demoralization among the uh, Russians army and this will just continue as time goes on. The most intense Ukrainian nationalist feeling is in the western part of the country, not the eastern part. And the Russians haven't gone anywhere in the western part of the country. Um, you remember that uh, Putin was saying that he wanted to denazify uh, the Ukraine, and that was the reason he was going in. Well, uh, you know, if we go back to the Second World War, the Nazi sympathizers who were in the Ukraine didn't live anywhere where the Russians are. They lived in the far western part of the country, uh, you know, the, the um, area sort of centered on Lviv. Um, where the Russians haven't uh, yet uh, come in. Uh, that's where the uh, Germans recruited uh, some 80,000 Ukrainian volunteers to fight with the German army back in the Second World War. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, so because Russia hasn't succeeded in plan A, which is to take uh, over the country and cause the government to collapse, their plan B is to kind of uh, destroy the country block by block and to sort of starve them out and, and, and blast them out, uh, you know, using heavy weapons um, and, uh, you know, using destruction and starvation as weapons. Um, but, you know, uh, this is a kind of a long grinding type war, which, uh, you know, may not lead to the results that the Russians think it's gonna to lead to. And uh, the fact that they're using this type of method, some people have brought up the idea that Putin should be charged with war crimes because clearly he's targeting civilian populations. You saw pictures of a shopping center that they blew up in Kiev and a hospital in Mariupol and, uh, um, you know, uh, apartment blocks in Kharkiv. So, uh, you know, this is hardly what you would call a military type uh, oper operation, especially the types that we've been used to, um, you know, uh, in, in the Middle East and this kind of thing. 
Um, another international aspect of this, uh, uh, this conflict is the um, relationship between Ukraine and Israel. And, you know, just to preface that, Zelensky has been speaking uh, on Zoom to uh, legislatures in different countries. And he spoke in, to Canada, he spoke to the US, he spoke to Great Britain, and he's tailored his speeches to kind of hit the right notes with each individual parliament. And when he spoke to the Knesset directly, he, he, he actually ran up into a bit of a problem because he tried to compare the Holocaust with the current Russian invasion of the Ukraine, uh, saying almost uh, that, uh, you know, that the Ukrainians sort of saved the Jews in the Holocaust, and now it's time for the Jews to help the Ukraine to prevent another Holocaust. So, you know, objections came loud and fast because number one, uh, the, the uh, aim of the Russians is not to eliminate every last Ukrainian uh, and to murder them in cold blood. So this is the first objection. The second objection is, as I was saying before, that many, many, many thousands of Ukrainians helped the Germans during the Second World War. The figures I was reading, uh, I mentioned uh, 80,000 Ukrainians fought for the Germans in the Second World War, and there were only 2,600 uh, righteous Gentiles. But of course, you know, those numbers are not uh, strictly comparable. But the fact is that uh, perhaps a million Jews were killed uh, in the Ukraine and not even shipped to the, uh, to the uh, death camps because the Germans, uh, when they invaded Ukraine in 1970, uh, 1941, they just came and killed the Jews uh, before there was any kind of um, organized shipment of people to the death camps. And in many, many cases, it was the Ukrainians who were helping them. Remember the case of John Demyanyuk from Canada, who was, uh, who was uh, you know, found guilty of, of doing just that. Um, the uh, Ukrainians have asked the Israelis to ship them those uh, Iron Dome missiles, which were so effective in blocking the Hamas rockets, but Israel said no um, for many reasons. Number one, Israel said we don't have any spares. Number two, uh, it may be that the technology that Israel has, they don't want it to get out uh, to any kind of third parties. Number three, and then perhaps most importantly, you can't just transfer a missile system uh, to one, from one country to another and expect it, it, it to work without any kind of real training. And uh, maybe the most practical thing is that um, Israel doesn't have anywhere near the number of, of Iron Dome missiles that it would take to protect the Ukraine. Remember, Israel is a tiny little country and uh, the... Um, the, the sort of missile radar stations to detect incoming missiles can just be placed in a few places and they cover the whole country. On the other hand, Ukraine is an enormous country in size and uh, you would need you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of missile detecting sites uh, placed all over the country to um, deter or to take away Russian uh, missiles coming in. Not only that, but the quality of missiles that the Russians are using, uh, their best ones are far better than any of the ones that Hamas um, or the Syrians might have to, uh, to attack Israel. So the Iron Dome would not be a, a suitable defense against those kinds of missiles. So these are some of the, uh, you know, some of the arguments that are being made uh, by Israel. Um, uh, the other point is, of course, that Israel uh, really wants to be more neutral in this issue uh, than most countries because um, the Russians, as you know, are based in Syria. They have an air base there. They have a naval base there. And their presence in Syria um, is not one that Israel loves, but uh, the Russians and the Israelis have been able to, to let's say, have a modus vivendi whereby if Israel is attacking any kind of Iranian um, uh, personnel or munitions depots or anything like that in Syria, so far Russia has allowed them to do that. 
they want to be informed in advance, uh, and I'm not sure if they are, but um, Russia has not attacked any Israeli planes over Syria, which they easily could do. And in order to continue that sort of relationship, Israel can't be seen as being, uh, you know, overly sympathetic with the Ukrainians, even though many people in the country are. Uh, the people who aren't, interestingly enough, when, when Zelensky spoke to the Knesset, the Arab uh, members of the left-wing parties decided to boycott this speech. And, and they said, well, this is all NATO's fault. In other words, they fell in line with the, uh, with the Russian uh, version of this whole war. And um, uh, it may well be it's because the, you know, so many um, Arab uh, students have gone to study in Russia. Uh, the Communist Party in Israel still has uh, sort of uh, ties to Russia and um, the, uh, the, uh, the decision was made, uh, you know, uh, and I think an unpopular one for the Arab parties to boycott the um, speech by Zelensky to the Knesset. The US uh, wants uh, Israel to send more aid to the Ukraine. And Israel said, well, you know, they, they built a, a field hospital there to, uh, to, to help um, the people who've been wounded in the war, but they're not sending soldiers and they're not sending weapons, um, unlike, you know, many other countries which are transferring weapons directly to the Ukraine and thousands of Ukrainians living abroad have gone back to the Ukraine to fight. Now, some Israeli Ukrainians have done the same thing. And some Israeli Russians have gone to the Ukraine to help them fight against, uh, against Russia. The, the overwhelming public opinion in Israel is really to be pro-Ukrainian, but not as pro-Ukrainian as in Europe. And, and this is for the historical reasons that I mentioned before. Um, so many Israelis have direct and, and one generation away experience of anti-Semitism in the Ukraine. Um, how uh, does this war look to end? You know, there could, uh, a complete occupation by the Russian forces of the Ukraine is impossible. Uh, the US came up with a figure saying that you need, uh, you need uh, something like uh, four, five, four or five times the number of soldiers that the Russians have already committed to the war to occupy the whole country. Uh, he doesn't have, Putin doesn't have the number of troops or the money to do it. Um, and remember, as I said before, that the unconquered parts of the Ukraine are even more anti-Russian than the conquered parts. Um, you know, he, his aim was to replace Zelensky with some sort of a, a stooge or, or a, um, um, uh, you know, yeah, some, some sort of a puppet, we'll call it a puppet leader of the Ukraine, but Putin claims that that's not his aim, but of course, you know, he lies about that. Um, for Putin to engage in a long war of attrition, the costs just mount up and up and up, and then what would be the point if his aim is not to occupy the whole of the country? Um, the... Uh, the uh, EU and NATO are not going to be involved in this war unless they get attacked directly. Um, is Russia going to use nuclear weapons? Probably not, because for one practical reason, the radiation will come back uh, on Russia, and that might draw in, of course, uh, Western nuclear powers as well. Um, will Russia retreat, retreat on its own and say, oops, we made a mistake? Uh, very unlikely because Putin, it would mean Putin's downfall. Um, is it possible that the Putin himself might be overthrown uh, by his own secret service? And, and, and I was reading, and you may have been reading as well, articles about this in the BBC who were saying that uh, uh, if things keep up the way they are, uh, the secret service might get quite rested. Um, the, uh, the uh, fact is, though, that this war is really the very first one uh, since 
a basic peace happened in Europe in 1945, with the exception of the Yugoslav uh, civil war, which is really a civil war. But this is the first kind of international war in Europe in uh, practically 80 years, which is probably a record for Europe. And um, there were some references that were made to great uh, important dates in European history. And I thought I would just repeat some of them uh, because I think that in the long run, you know, with perspective going on, we will rank 2022 as one of those uh, important dates in European history, um, along with, uh, I have, uh, I just wrote a few down for you to, uh, you know, to keep track of. And one was, uh, this is all European history, of course, um, the, uh, the recognition of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's a big plus. That, that's a big uh, important date in 323, because it sort of set Europe on the path that it's gone to uh, ever since, uh, with Christianity being official religion. Imagine if there was no such thing as an official religion and different religions or, 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 or the Roman religion continued to, uh, to be practiced. Uh, for all we know, European history would be very different. In 1052, uh, this is important that the, the, the break of the church between the Catholic church and the Orthodox church happened in that year. And that marked again, two different pathways for Europe to develop. Uh, on that same subject today, in today's news, the Archbishop of the Russian Orthodox Church just decided today that the war with Ukraine is a holy war. And considering that the Ukraine is also an Orthodox country, um, but whose church broke away from the Russian church uh, just in the past few years, uh, this shows how mixing religion and politics can end up to be uh, quite a... Uh, a potent, um, let's say, uh, time bomb. Um, other important dates in European history I put uh, down is 1453 when Constantinople was captured by the Turks and Constantinople was the headquarters uh, and still is of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So again, um, this sort of mixture of, of church, of religion and politics comes in. Uh, 1492, of course, the discovery of the New World by Columbus. Um, the French Revolution in 1789 was the sort of beginning of a new way in Europe of uh, looking at, um, uh, of looking at uh, rule. And uh, you could say that the 1789 uh, revolution in France and the subsequent takeover of France by the kind of, we'll call it nationalistic, non-democratic, um, murderous uh, revolutionaries uh, presaged the, the, the Russian revolution of 1917, uh, who, which was led by the same sort of fanatics that was the one that, 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 that you know, um, that made a revolution in France. Um, the uh, assassination in 1914 of the Austrian Archduke, we spoke about that last week, led to the First World War. Um, the 1917 Russian Revolution happened because the First World War was going on and going very badly for Russia. The Soviet Union was established. Uh, 1939, of course, Germany started the Second World War. In 1945, at the end of the Second World War, uh, the Soviet Union, was starting then, was able to expand its empire into Eastern Europe, which sort of led to, you know, some of the things that we're talking about today. And uh, then you had 80 years of peace in Europe until now, until 2022, when the Soviets, with no, um, no reason, no um, causes belly, as we say, no cause for the war. They just decided to invade the Ukraine just like that. Um, I just wanted to mention now to get off of this subject, I have a few minutes to speak about a couple other things. Um, uh, didn't make world news yesterday, but a... Uh, uh, 
uh, one of the leaders, you know, well, let, let's, you know, let's preface this by saying the following, that you know, in France, there's going to be elections uh, this spring uh, for the uh, presidency of the country. And Mr. Macron is running against uh, eight other candidates um, for the uh, two round uh, selection, meaning that unless one candidate wins 50% of the total vote in the first round, uh, in the second round, you have the top two candidates facing off against each other. And um, nobody is gonna win 50% of the vote in the first round, that's for sure, not with uh, eight different people running. So uh, in all likelihood, Mr. Macron is going to be facing somebody in the second round. Now with that as a kind of a background, there was a murder yesterday in France of a Corsican uh, nationalist in jail. So this Corsican nationalist was accused of killing a policeman in Corsica, and he was sentenced to a long term in jail. And uh, he was shipped off to mainland France to serve his term in a prison. And he was murdered there yesterday by uh, an Islamic uh, radical who was uh, in jail for something else. And uh, this led to um, uh, tremendous demonstrations in Corsica. Uh, you know, first of all, they demanded that he, beforehand, they demanded that he serve his prison term on the island itself, which the French, of course, refused. But <clears throat> the demonstrations in Corsica were so widespread that President uh, Macron said, uh, and perhaps it's because of the election and perhaps uh, perhaps for other reasons, but he said that he would be willing to discuss uh, some sort of autonomy for Corsica. And you have to understand that in France, um, uh, ever since the royal regime, there's been a kind of a very strong centralizing uh, uh, feeling in France uh, that France is not a federal state, that France does not have provinces, uh, that France does not have uh, autonomous regions. Um, you know, uh, you know, there's a very small exception uh, of Alsace-Lorraine, uh, which was lost by the French uh, in the Franco-Prussian War and then it was gained back at the end of the First World War. So the Alsace has a bit of a separate status when it comes to um, church-state relations in France. But uh, with that very minor exception, um, France always saw itself as sort of one centralized unified country divided into a bunch of départements, which are like uh, cantons, we'll call them, with no uh, real strong power. And the fact that France is saying now that they're willing to talk about some sort of separate status, uh, you know, so-called sovereignty association, maybe, or I don't know what else, uh, for Corsica means uh, a real strong break in the past, with the past. Now, um, was this done by Macron to avoid or to, to calm down the population of Corsica so that they won't... Um, go on uh, rampages during an election campaign? Or was it done because of a realization that, um, you know, France is not the homogeneous state that uh, it makes itself out to be? It's hard to know. But this event uh, in uh, the murder, uh, and the guy's name was Mr. Colonna. Mr. Colonna's murder um, uh, sparked a, a huge uh, kind of uh, uprising in Corsica. And, um, you know, Corsica, by the way, is an island in the Mediterranean uh, off the coast of France. So it's not far from France. It belongs to France. But it is one of the islands, the three islands of um, uh, Corsica, Sardinia, and Sicily. The, the last two belong to Italy. And you probably remember that Napoleon Bonaparte was born in uh, Corsica, uh, where... Uh, you know, the mother tongue of many of the people is not French, but is a Corsican, which is a kind of a dialect, we'll call it an Italian type dialect. And Napoleon did not learn to speak French until uh, much later when he went to uh, have higher, you know, school, higher education back in, in, in France itself. Um, uh, another, uh, point that was just came out today in a speech by the head of the UN 
is that because of the uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis, uh, because of the move away from uh, and the, the trying to break the, the dependence of Europe on, 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 on Russian coal and gas, uh, sorry, Russian oil and gas, that coal production in Europe has jumped up, that uh, Europeans are now trying to use coal to replace Russian gas, uh, that you know there is a system of using coal directly to burn it to create electricity, and another system to transform coal into into oil, which can then be uh, used either for vehicles or or for burning in uh, in power plants. And uh, remember, when there were sanctions against South Africa so many uh, years back uh, under the white regime. Uh, uh, South Africa had no oil or gas of its own, but they had plenty of coal. So the scientists there in South Africa developed a uh, system to transform the coal into energy, uh, sort of gasification of coal. And they were the ones who started this uh, system. And now the Europeans are, are kind of trying to copy the, uh, the, the, you know, the same process in order not to be so dependent on, um, on uh, oil and gas. And uh, the, the, other, the other thing that this sort of war has caused, as you could probably figure out, is that um, the sp spike in the price of oil and gas have led people to um, buy electric cars and look, and look at buying electric cars or hybrid cars, uh, you know, kind of in a huge amount of way uh, way more than they would have done under normal circumstances. So uh, you, you, you should know that roughly 5% of cars being sold these days are electric cars. Uh, but this jump in the price of gas uh, to over $2 a liter in Canada and in the US over $4 a gallon uh, has led to all kinds of people showing up in Tesla showrooms and, um, you know, uh, people are looking at buying electric vehicles like they've never, uh, like they've never done before. So, uh, yeah, I think um, pretty well that's it. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to be able to uh, move away from this subject, but somehow or other, it just hits me so strongly uh, that, um, uh, the, the the realization, you, you know, that kind of um, people uh, who are not, we'll say, you know, people who are Europeans or who have lived a European lifestyle, um, you know, have all of a sudden been uh, uh, thrown out of their homes and fleeing for their lives and you see their pictures on TV the children and the crying and the deaths, of course, of innocent people. Uh, it brings home to us how lucky we are to be able to live in such a peaceful country and, um, you, you know, having not been uh, uh, affected directly by something like this uh, in a very long time. So uh, uh, the other point uh, is that the, I was going to say that the, the mobilization to help the Ukrainians has passed into the arts world and you hear the concerts and benefits being held and money being uh, raised and transferred. And um, it's quite amazing how this uh, action of Putin has mobilized the world to support his, his enemies uh, in so many different formats and so many different ways. So um, I'm gonna stop there and see what kind of questions or comments you have. And uh, we'll see, you know, next week, maybe we can tackle some other um, uh, subject of interest. We haven't spoken lately about um, anything in the, in the Far East. And then there's some, some certainly interesting things happening there. There was an election in South Korea. Uh, there is a battle against COVID in Hong Kong, which has not happened uh, up until now. Uh, and lots of other interesting things going on in the world besides the Ukraine, but, you know, I just wanted to focus on this for, for this time. So thanks again, and let me know uh, what kind of questions or comments you have, or 
you know, if you've got other suggestions that you would like to hear about uh, in the future. So Angela, you, you have the floor now, see what's going on out there. Uh, nothing yet, but uh, I don't know if you heard, there was a, I don't know if it was a Chicago mayor or some person from Chicago that offered $200,000 uh, worth of gas to people just to help them out. So there was like certain gas stations that you could get up to $50 oh. and he, he like, he gave $200,000 for people to fill up on gas. Well, I didn't hear about that particularly, but I did hear of many other schemes being talked about, including one which would involve the federal government dropping the gas tax in the uh, United States as a whole to lower prices, which is, in my opinion, a ridiculous idea. Uh, first of all, the U.S. gas tax is so low, it's only 18 federal, the federal gas tax is only 18 cents a gallon and hasn't been raised since the 1960s. And it really should have been raised a long time ago. Um, uh, there was talk about this so-called gas tax holiday, which, you know, after all, would not lower the gas price a whole lot. I can tell you that um, the gas, the, the normal gas price um, uh, in the U.S. now is somewhere around four dollars and nine cents a gallon it, it had hit as high as 429 or even 439 before dropping back and um so if you can imagine an 18 cent change would not be will be like less than five percent which is really next to nothing so it wouldn't make a wouldn't make a whole lot of difference um for sure, high prices of gas means that people think about changing their ways and uh, commuting, uh, carpooling, uh, using public transportation, um, you know, all these things which sort of fell by the wayside when the, after the last big jump in gas prices, uh, people are now, uh, you know, coming back to these ideas again. So um, I am sure that uh, in the long run, the gas prices will fall again because there will be a combination of um, people trying to save gas by, by, you know, all the systems that I was talking about. And, you know, production being ramped up. You can't just press a button and increase production. That's not the way uh, oil and gas, you know, uh, production works. But, um, you know, over time, you can bring back, back wells that have been closed down. Over time, you can drill new wells. Um, over time, you can, um, you know, go to use more fracking um, and um, all of these things take a while for them to, to you know, to, to come on. And the same goes for gas production. It's uh, not instantly that you snap your fingers and you can produce more gas, but the gas is all there. There's no shortage of gas in the world. It just has to be drawn out of the ground and shipped by pipeline to the right places. And um, you know those pipelines sometimes have to be built and that takes a lot of time. So, um, you know, the world responds or the economy responds to increased demand and higher prices. It just takes time for it to happen. Any other um, questions or ideas? I hear this ringing sound. I have no idea where it's coming from. I don't know if you can hear it yourself. I can't hear it. Uh, oh, but you can't? Okay, that's a good thing. Oh, now I hear it. It's like a beeping sound. Like a beep. Yeah, it's sort of just a long beep or a long, a long uh, ringing sound. It's coming from somewhere around here, but I have no idea where or what. Uh, there's nobody else, Mr. Dorskin. I don't see any raised hands or uh, chance. Okay, so... Um, uh, you know, in that case, I want to thank everybody. Uh, I hope um, to see you all again next week. And uh, we're, uh, we're coming uh, closer to holiday period. And, um, you know, people have all kinds of different things to do. Uh, people who are in Florida, like myself, uh, getting prepared to come back home. It's this huge migration. The migration is as big as the 
as the birds flying uh, north, you know, that's why they call snowbirds and we're uh, just like birds who fly south in the winter and fly back north in the spring. And that's what, oh, there it goes, uh, sound finished. Oh my God, my ears are so ringing. So uh, like I said, I hope to see you all again. And um, if you can think of something during the week that you'd like me to speak about, just uh, email uh, myself or, um, you know, uh, or Angela, and I'll be glad to look into it. So thanks again, and I'll see you all again. Thank you, Mr. Dwaskin, and thank you to everyone listening in over the telephone and online. We shall see you next week. Have a great And thank you, Angela, for everything. We'll see you next week. You're Bye. very welcome. Bye-bye.